Happy Halloween, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Kibblehouse, and today we have our newest scientist for the Gills Club Science team. We have Dr. Michelle Passerati on the podcast today. If you do follow the Gills Club on our social media, and if you don't, what are you doing? Go ahead and follow us. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Gills Club, where you will find more about our science team, the podcast, and anything shark science related on there. But if you've been following us, you've been seeing that we have been featuring Michelle and her work throughout the month of October. But today we are going to be diving deep and getting the full on who, what, where, when, why about Michelle and her work as a fish biologist at the NOAA Apex Predators program at the Narragansett Lab in Rhode Island. We're also going to talk about her past life before moving up to Rhode Island and about her previous work that she has done throughout the years as well. So sit back and relax and enjoy our episode today with Dr. Michelle Passerati. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Gills Talk interview. Today, we have one of our newest Gills Club scientists, Dr. Michelle Passerati. So welcome. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's great to be here. Yes, I'm so excited. I've heard a lot about you. I haven't met you, so meeting you via Zoom here right now is very nice. So it's very nice to meet meet you and to be able to see you here on a Zoom scope to be able to get to know more about your research. So I think we're just going to kick it off, and I would love to hear what your current role is and what your research is. Yeah, sure. So I am currently a fish biologist with the NOAA Fisheries Apex Predators Program. So that program is situated within the Northeast Fisheries Science Center at the Narragansett Rhode Island Lab. So um, I'm actually quite new to Rhode Island. I've only been here a little over a year now. So um, it's been really fun to settle in not only to a new job, but a new region of the country entirely for me. And yeah, so our mission here at the Apex Predators Program um, is to conduct life history research and monitoring of coastal and oceanic sharks, which is used to help inform fisheries managers about the best ways to manage populations of all the different shark species in the Western North Atlantic. Super interesting. I know a previous Gills Club scientist, Dr. Lisa Natanzen, used to have this position before she retired. So I know it was really exciting to hear um, when you were hired to be then in that lab and be able to continue the work of the Apex Predator program. So then when we are looking at monitoring these different types of shark species, then how does that work? How are we doing that process of monitoring? Sure. So yeah, just to touch back on Lisa, filling in Lisa Natanson's role, um, she left quite those shoes to fill. So she did some amazing things in her, I think, 30 plus years uh, that she was here with Noah. And yeah, so I stepped into her job and that role is, is really the main focus is to study life history. So basically the who, what, when, where, why, and how of shark life. Um, so specifically like understanding the basic ideas of how fast sharks grow, how long they live, when they reproduce, what they eat, and then the where of where they do all these things. 
So um, all of those things are key components of understanding, you know, how those populations function and how we can then predict the impacts of fishing um, and things like climate change on their ability to sustain themselves. And so um, as part of this mission, we then collect data and biological samples from sharks across a few different platforms to help us answer those questions. Um, so some of the platforms that we use, we sort of have a multifaceted approach. And so our platforms include two different longline surveys, um, which are where we go out and fish for sharks sort of in a standardized way, according to a specific schedule. And then by accumulating, you know, that catch data from those surveys over time, that can help us tell if a population size is changing over time. And then we can try and figure out why that might be. We have two longline surveys. And then another platform that is a huge part of our program is the Cooperative Shark Tagging Program uh, that's run out of our Narragansett lab. And so that program is actually one of the oldest citizen science programs in the world. Um, and it is the oldest shark tagging program in the world. It's been running since 1962. And so this year is actually our 60th anniversary of the Cooperative Shark Tagging Program. So happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that program sort of encompasses a collaborative effort between NOAA Fisheries um, and recreational and commercial fishermen, as well as other research partners. Um, who all, we all work together to put out um, conventional tags. These are not satellite tags. So we're not as lucky as some to have a lot of money to spend on putting satellite tags out on sharks, but we use conventional tags, which are just um, sort of plastic tags that have a unique number code on them. And the premise of these are to, um, if a fisherman or a researcher catches a shark, they can tag it and release it. And then if that shark is recaptured somewhere down the line, um, whoever recaptures it has a phone number on the tag that they can call and report it. And that helps us gain information about where sharks are moving, how long they live, how fast they're growing, and all of that data amassed over 60 years proves to be an incredible amount of data that helps us in, you know, be informed about uh, how sharks are living. Um, so that's a really big component of what we do at Apex. Uh, and finally, we sample a lot of sharks that are collected as part of fisheries or um, even, you know, sharks that wash up on shore dead. We have a great network of partners here in the Northeast that um, Atlantic White Shark Conservancy included <laughs> that will give us a call if something washes up and we can go down and, and take samples so that, you know, no part of that shark um, goes to waste and all goes towards research. A very multi-step, multi-level, multi-collaborative group when looking at the Apex Predator pro program here. So I want to kind of start with the longline surveys because one, if people aren't really familiar with this, they are a more longer time out, out there, correct? You're not out just there for the day and then you come back in and get to sleep in your cozy bed at home, right? So it depends. So like oh. I mentioned before, we have two surveys. So the first one I'll talk about um, is the Coast Band program, which is the, um, oh gosh, Cooperative Atlantic States Shark Pupping and Nursery Area Survey. And Impressive. so- you knew that. <laughs> I hope I got that right. 
<laughs> um, and so that survey is actually part of a network of surveys that happens along the Atlantic coast. So there are multiple research groups that undertake that in different estuaries. And um, for our lab specifically, Cami McCandless, who is the lead of the Apex Predators program, um, runs the Coast Band Survey in Delaware Bay. And so for that, um, she actually does use a small boat, uh, you know, like a 22-foot outboard boat, and they go out for day trips. Um, so they have a small long line that they deploy, and they're targeting, you know, those um, just puffed or young of year sharks that are using the estuary as a nursery ground. And they also will tend to capture some of the, you know, mothers moving in and out of the area to pup, um, as well as some of the smaller species like small coastal sharks, bonnet heads, Atlantic sharp nose, things like that, that um, will tend to use the estuary year round. So that is an example of a survey that you can go home and sleep in a somewhat <laughs> comfy bed <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, so that, that survey runs um, 10 days each month in the summer every year. So May through, or no, sorry, June through August um, every summer. And so then the other survey we run is the Coastal Shark Bottom Longline Survey. And so I'm the chief scientist for that as part of my role here. And that is a survey that we're out for about 50 days and you're sleeping on the boat. <laughs> so, you know, requires a little bit more, you know, love of the sea. But yeah, that survey has been running since um, the late 1980s. And it surveys Atlantic coastal waters from Florida all the way up to Delaware um, when we're able to have good weather and get up that far north. It's about 90 stations total that we sample. Wow. We have fixed stations um, that we target, you know, every time we go out. And that survey runs every other year, typically. So like I said, it's about 50 days total. We stay out for a couple weeks at a time, come in, kind of refresh supplies, and then head back out after a day on land. And during that survey, we typically will catch, tag, and release over 2,000 sharks. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot of work. <laughs> um, and, you know, the shark species will comprise like sandbars, black tits, spinners, bulls, tigers, hammerheads, um, short fin makos, and even occasionally a white shark here and there. And, you know, that survey is actually the longest fisheries independent time series that we have for Atlantic large coastal sharks. And that means, you know, it's not relying on commercial fishing data or landings data, you know, to inform us. It's just scientists going out and doing standardized sampling um, over the course of that time. And so, because of that, our survey data are really important for understanding how Atlantic shark species are changing over time. And all of those data are used in the stock assessments that are done for Atlantic large coastal and pelagic shark species. Mm -hmm. Now, I think having such a large data set could also be daunting to be able to look at and to be able to compare something that was, you said, from the late 80s. So that is almost 40 years mm -hmm. <laughs> of data to be able to, to look at. So I think one, it would be extremely helpful, but two, it's extremely daunting, <laughs> I think as well. 
It is. Um, and so I will just put out there that I'm not a modeler by training. <laughs> so um, I, you know, am learning, but all kudos go to Kianima Camless and all the other modelers uh, in the world that take all of these numbers and factor in, you know, environmental variables and spatial use variability and all kinds of other factors in order to produce this standardized abundance index over time that, you know, looks at true changes in population numbers outside of any other factors that might be influencing it. But what's really cool is that, you know, modeling has evolved over the years and we're getting to a point now where we have really sophisticated mathematical models that can help us parse out things like climate change and how that is affecting the spatial use of habitats by shark species and sort of filtering that out from, you know, population increases versus just we might be seeing more of them because, you know, the water is warmer and this habitat is now suitable for them, whereas it wasn't before. So it's, it's a really challenging field, but it's like really cool um, when you can start to see results like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think then when you have something that is such a rich data set that you can really start, you could compare, you know, you have 40 years to, to compare and to see, like, as you, as you were saying that maybe due to climate change and in some areas that there are certain species that are there now that maybe weren't there or vice versa, but um, are you actually seeing that with species currently, or is it something that, that the lab is always looking into as they're doing analysis and such? Yeah, I mean, it's always been something that, you know, is looked at over time, but now with climate change being such a, a specter of, you know, um, you know, a driver of, of changes and like I was saying, habitat use and, and water temperature, especially, we are starting to see a lot of changes um, in just fish migration patterns, you know, changing the timing of their migration, how far north they're migrating. We're starting to see up here in New England, you know, species that before wouldn't come north of Long Island and now we've got them off Rhode Island or even further, mm -hmm. you know, black tits and spinners being a good example of that. But specifically with our survey data, you know, it was really interesting. Um, this year, we did a research track stock assessment for all four hammerhead species, which was the first time that hammerheads had been assessed by NOAA fisheries um, individually as species and not as part of a complex. And so in analyzing our survey data, looking at scalloped hammerheads, the initial abundance estimates made it look like there was this kind of exponential increase in scalloped hammerheads for our survey over the last like, you know, five or 10 years. And that's not really biologically realistic because we know that these sharks are slow growing, they are late to reproduce. Um, so, you know, there had to be something else going on there. And through using these like more sophisticated spatial um, habitat models, Cami and the other modelers, on the team were able to actually show that that huge increase that our survey captured was actually an increase in, in a change in habitat use um, and timing of migration for scalloped hammerheads. So really, really interesting stuff. I think even looking at them here, like you said, you're seeing spe species like black tips and spinners go fur further north and like historically they've been. I, 
we, you know, running our app Sharktivity and vetting those white shark sightings, but then we're getting a lot of sightings that people are trying to put on the app from hammerheads off of, Mar of, Mar of Martha's Vineyard. And I feel like this year more than anything, there's been just like way more sightings, but again, that could be just more people are out there looking. So that's why there could be an, an increase very similar to how people attribute that to white sharks here that they got the, the population must be booming because of all the sightings, but more eyes are out there as well. So can, is that factored into that being like, as more people are more aware of sharks and more love of sharks are happening than dislove of sharks? Like, is that put in, I know it's hard to quantify that though. Right. So that's the beauty of fisheries independent surveys is that, you know, they are standardized. We're not taking in data to inform those abundance estimates from anything outside of our catch data. So in terms of what's informing stock assessment, like you said, it's very difficult to try and quantify sort of like citizen science data because that is an entirely different way of collecting data and it has all of its different caveats that go along with it. So, you know, that's why these, these abundance, you know, estimates from surveys are incredibly important. But it's also really neat to see the rise of citizen science and to learn and figure out how to incorporate that into management, because it is so valuable that we now have so many people with cameras on their phones and can log into an app and say, I saw this shark, um, you know, on this day in this location. And it's so much more information than we've ever had before. So now the challenge is figuring out how to use that in the best way, you know, to help inform management too. Mm -hmm. I think then switching gears into citizen science, let's talk about the cooperative shark tagging program, you know, that 60 year program. So then how can someone that is listening right now that maybe likes to fish, you know, can occasionally do fish sharks, how can they be a part of the program? Sure. So, um, yeah, we encourage people to reach out if they're interested. Um, you know, we do have a few rules and guidelines that have to be followed, but we have a website. Um, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but if you just Google NOAA shark tagging program, it's going to be one of the first things that comes up. And um, our website has information to contact our tagging coordinator to request a tagging kit. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, so if anyone is listening, um, please do some some Googling and they will take you <laughs> to the right place. We'll make sure that that link is in the bio of this podcast as well. Um, so people can just check that as well. If you don't want to, to, go, to Google it, just hit, hit the, the description of this episode as well. But I think when we're looking at if it is through the shark tagging program or through the long lines, has there ever been a species that you've been surprised to see come through or there's been like an outlier of someone of like one being like super small or one that's like really big or anything that has just been like blown you out out of the water no pun intended but <laughs> yeah yeah you know we get some interesting um, um reports sometimes so we always like to vet you know our our um tagging reports. So we always ask for a picture if possible to help us confirm, you know, identification. Sharks can definitely be tricky to identify, especially for, you know, folks who don't see more than a few species normally. So, um, you know, we've gotten some reports, you know, I think we've had some folks say, oh, we caught a 
caught a leopard shark in the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, leopard sharks aren't really endemic to the Gulf of Mexico. So that one kind of makes us go, hmm, it was probably something else. And then fortunately, in that instance, the angler actually had a photo and it was just a really vibrantly colored tiger shark. So, ah. you know, sometimes those tigers and people tend to think of them as having stripes, but when they're younger, it's actually more like spots. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it can be a little bit confusing. So things like that, we're always quick to try and um, vet reporting and make sure that, you know, what we're um, capturing in the data is actually reflecting what's going on out there. But yeah, I mean, like, that's one a great source for understanding some of these like initial changes and movement patterns, you know, you start to get reports of black tips further north, you know, or, you know, our, our partners say, gosh, you know what, usually I'm not tagging black tips until April, but this year I saw them as early as March, you know, so that kind of is more indication that timing of migrations are changing and things like that. So really incredibly valuable to have all that input coming in from, you know, lots of different anglers out there on the water. Um, fishermen are an incredibly valuable resource to fisheries managers because, you know, they're the ones that are out there every day um, seeing what's happening and, you know, being able to work with them cooperatively um, is, is really, really important to management. Oh, absolutely. I think that is a theme we see with a few of our scientists that have come on the, this podcast, being able to work with fishermen. So um, there are episode that's out right now with Ivy Bearmore. She works with fisher with fishers out of Belize. Um, Melanie Hutchinson's doing it on the West Coast. I mean, there's so many like, like Hannah Med collaborates with them out of Florida. I mean, I think almost I want to say almost every one of our episodes so far, we have had a scientist in some way in one of their projects and some part in their life has collaborated with fishers at one point in time. Because it's like you said, they're the ones that that are, are, are out there. They are a really important tool within the science industry. Yeah. So I also want to get into a little bit. Um, so you said this is a newer position for you. You've only been in this for about a year. So then what was your past life before moving to Rhode Island? What were what kind of research or science or what were you doing before that? Well, I've had quite a handful of adventures before I got here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I certainly have not had a linear path to shark science, um, which I think is really cool. And, you know, I'm excited to share that it doesn't all have to look the same. You know, mm -hmm. people can become a shark scientist regardless of the background that you come from. I, you know, wanted to study sharks my whole life. I grew up in the Big Bend region of Florida, so sort of near Tallahassee in North Florida, and spent, you know, my childhood fishing with my dad and snorkeling in the seagrass beds in Appalachian Bay, um, which if you've never been there is, is really one of the last like pristine seagrass beds, um, I think like in the world. It's, it's just a huge nursery area, um, hugely productive um, for all sorts of different species. And um, we used to go scalloping every summer. So we would snorkel in the seagrass and pick up bay scallops um, and get to see lots of different critters while we were down there. So that really, you know, piqued my interest and made me want to know more about the ocean. And, you know, so from there just sort of became really interested in reading books by Eugenie Clark and Jacques Cousteau and ended up going to Florida State University for my undergrad degree. And then from there, I did, while I was a student there, I did an internship with the NOAA Fisheries Lab in Panama City, Florida. So I was actually an intern with Ivy. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> 
So um, we go way back. We know each other very well. She's a very good friend. Um, but yeah, so I interned with that program with their um, golf span program, which is sort of like the, the counterpart to coast span. So it's a shark tagging program targeting the nursery areas in the Gulf Coast. And um, so did that for two summers. And then after I graduated, I actually worked there for a year on the reef fish side of the hallway and sectioned some otoliths and learned about, you know, aging fish and how that gets used for management. And it really, you know, just sort of set a course for me. I became really fascinated with fisheries management. And then, so from there, I went to LSU, Louisiana State University over in Baton Rouge for a master's degree and um, did not study sharks in the least. I, my thesis research focused on using um, nucleic acids to, um, as an index for growth and condition in gobies. So far from sharks, <laughs> but you know, the cool thing about science is that it's science and the principles apply, you know, across a lot of different species and a lot of different platform. So um, that was a really cool project. And then when I finished my master's degree, I actually came back to Panama City and ended up working at the fisheries lab as an observer coordinator for the um, Southeast Gillnet Observer Program. And so that was really where I started to get my feet wet with shark research. We, you know, the observer program is part of NOAA's national observer program where we put commercial fisheries observers onto commercial fishing vessels and um, they collect data on, you know, what's being caught, the gear that's being used and interactions with protected resources. Through that program, we collected a lot of data and samples on sharks and were able to do, you know, quite a few studies looking at Asian growth, um, diet habits, and then I was there during the time that the Highly Migratory Species Division within NOAA Fisheries stood up the shark research fishery, the sandbar shark research fishery. And so um, because sandbar shark populations had declined so much, there was a need to shut that fishery to any you know, landings, but we also recognized that we didn't know enough about sandbar sharks and their life history to be able to manage them very well. So that um, research fishery enabled a select few fishermen to have a permit to go out and collect a set number of sharks, sandbar sharks. And then our observers collected samples from those and brought them back. And then we were able to do all the studies on you know, how old they get, how fast they grow, what they're eating, how often they're reproducing, how many pups they have. And that has been used to inform management ever since. And so that was like a really incredibly valuable experience to get to have. I feel really fortunate to have been part of that. During that time, <laughs> I got married and had a kid. <laughs> and my husband is actually in the military. He's active duty Air Force. And so, yeah, I became a military spouse. And it turns out that, you know, life in the military means you have to move a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I actually had to leave that position with the observer program because we got relocated to North Carolina. So at one point I actually thought that like I was done with shark science. I thought, you know, this isn't compatible with my new life and, you know, I've got to figure out something else to do with my time. And so um, I was actually taking classes, looking at going to nursing school, um, you know, to have something that was a little more 
movable in terms of a career. Yeah, it just turned out that like everywhere we landed, I was interested enough in in the shark stuff to just kind of keep it going on the side. I kept plugging away at projects I still had going on and and publishing papers that, you know, I needed to publish, um, even though I wasn't really working anymore. Um, And then I sort of started finding opportunities wherever I landed to do something in, you know, in the realm of fisheries management. So I worked as a contractor on a NOAA contract when we lived in North Carolina. Uh, We moved to South Carolina and I worked on that same no contract, but over in Puerto Rico um, for a couple of years. And then I decided that I really wanted something that was more research focused. And so I had an idea for a dissertation project and um, I called up a professor at the University of South Carolina who didn't know me from Adam and said, hey, I have this project idea, uh, you know, you come recommended from some, you know, folks we have in common. And he said, well, that sounds really cool. I don't have any funding for that, but we can certainly write some grants and try and make that happen. And so that's exactly what we did. So I was able to get my dissertation work done while we lived in South Carolina and then had to move in the middle of that to Texas. And um, so that's where I was when I finished my dissertation in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, then I, you know, interviewed for this position and, and, you know, was offered it and so um, moved up to Narragansett. So it's sort of been a a long and twisty ride, but, you know, super exciting. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that, though, because it shows that it's like you said, even though you weren't starting off with sharks, like these skills that you were learning and actively doing, you know, helped you be able to get to where you are today. And I think it shows that how, how much you were able to adapt, you know, you're moving constantly, you know, you're married, you have a child. And I think it also shows that like, just because I think there's this misconception, especially with women in science that, you know, once you're married and have a child, that like you're done and it's quite the opposite. You don't have to be. And I think it's, um, for me, it's really inspiring to see that um, and, and showing how, you know, now you're being able to be in Narragansett at Reading, such an amazing program that is going out, out, out of there and having all these different kind of like facets and, you know, different branches that are running out of it. Yeah, it's been really rewarding to, because you know, for a lot of years, it felt like, why am I doing this to myself? You know, like I am constantly trying to make this happen. And everyone says it's just too difficult. And maybe you should focus on something else. And, you know, it's like, I guess I'm just stubborn. Um, But I just, you know, I, I knew that it was possible if I just worked a little bit harder, you know, and so it really it has been so rewarding to see it finally pay off. And, you know, sort of like, a defining moment or sort of just like a great summation of all of this, like, um, you know, being a mom and a scientist and just sort of all the different hats that you have to wear and how flexible you need to be. Um, The most recent stranding that we had um, was a white shark that washed up on the Cape on July 4th. And, you know, Greg Scomel called me and was like, hey, Michelle, we got the shark. Can you make it up to the Cape tomorrow to come dissect it? And I had just gotten a call that my babysitter had fallen through for that day. Oh, no. He had canceled on me. So 
I said, yes, Greg, I can definitely make it up there. And I said, hey, kids, <laughs> guess who's going to dissect a white shark with me tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, that sounds like the best field, field trip ever, though. <laughs> I know, like what kid wouldn't be ecstatic about that? So, yeah, I, I loaded them up and they came with me and they had a great time. And, you know, even my youngest got to help take DNA samples. Um, so, you know, like, I think that it's a great illustration of just, you know, what the challenges that women scientists face and, you know, but that they're not insurmountable, you know, and I, I think that the world and the workplace, you know, are becoming more friendly to, you know, people with families. Um, so, you know, that's really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and what an incredible experience that, you know, your children was able to experience seeing that. I mean, that's better than any like lab that they get in school, unless they are dissecting an animal in school, but you know what I mean? Like that's like hands-on, literally hands-on experience that they got to see. So right, awesome. Exactly. Yeah. So I am going to not keep you for too long. Um, so I would like to ask you just one more question before we do leave today. So I would love to hear what some advice that you would have either to your younger self or somebody that is coming up in this field right now. I would just say that in general, trusting yourself and being confident, you know, will take you far. You know, I I think that a lot of times people think, oh, I could never email that scientist, you know, they don't have time for me. They aren't aren't interested in what I have to say, or, you know, I'm not someone they would be looking for to come and volunteer with them or to work with them. But, you know, I challenge that. And I say that, you know, anyone who's interested or has a question or wants to be part of shark research or science in general, you know, don't be shy, um, be confident and, and trust your instincts and, you know, reach out to people that share similar interests, um, who have a job that you, that you like and think that you might want to do one day. You know, we scientists are all just regular people and we were all in that spot, you know, at one point in our lives. And so, um, you know, just definitely don't, you know, be afraid to, to reach out and try and make an opportunity for yourself because that really um, is, is what, makes it happen for a lot of people. You know, these things a lot of times are just a factor of like being in the right place at the right time or meeting the right person, having the right conversation. So, you know, be willing to put yourself out there and and be open to those opportunities and more than likely they'll come. And yeah, just again, like to never think that just because of your position um, or where you're at right this very moment that you can't make those opportunities happen for yourself. You know, career paths don't have to be linear. If you find yourself with an opportunity to study red snapper, but you really want to study sharks, that's okay. Study the red snapper. You have an opportunity. Um, And just be aware that those principles that you learn are valuable across science. You know, it's not just specific to one species. So um, take opportunities where they come and, you know, always be looking for ways to make your life, what you want it to be. I think that is great advice to end on. So thank you so much, Michelle. So I know that um, if people can go online to find the, the cooperative shark tagging program, but also then is there any social media that people can follow you or the lab on to keep up to date with everything that's going on? 
Sure. Yeah. People can look me up on Twitter. I'm at Shells PC, S-H-E-L-L-S-P-C. Um, and Noah has a whole bunch of different Twitter handles, so I'm not even going to try and remember them all, but a quick uh, Twitter <laughs> search will, will lead you right to them. <laughs> yeah. And we'll link again, all that in the description of this podcast as well. So it's, it is going to be an easier find. Yes. Noah, I think has a Twitter account for every single thing that they do, which is great, but it can be hard <laughs> to find sometimes. So thank you so much, M- Michelle. Um, and I am so excited to be able to keep in touch and to be able to hear about everything that's going on with the the lab. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Kristen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.